Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode number 32. And, you know, I always say this with every guest we have, but very few guests, they don't need an introduction. You just say a name and everyone knows who it is. And, of course, it gives me great pleasure. I am honored. I've known him a long time. I admire him. I respect him. You know, I could go on and on and on, but then you would think I'm being insincere. So uh, uh, Nick Lidstrom joins us, a uh, Hall of Famer. Uh, perhaps the greatest defenseman, certainly the greatest defenseman in Red Wing history, one of the greatest of all time. Nick, thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Mark. Uh, last time we saw each other, we toured this arena together. It was the last day of the Joe. It was, let's let's be honest, it was kind of rough looking at that point. We, but now you're seeing it for the first time up close. What do you think? Oh, it, it's amazing. It's, it's really impressive. You know, like you said, last time we were here, there were a lot of hard hats running around. It's more a construction site than anything. But but seeing it now, when it's all you know finished and, and seeing the quality, and and it, it's, it truly is amazing. I, you know, I looked at it, and I said this to you before, but when I look at this building, I look at it as a testament to you and several of the other players that if it wasn't for those teams, which were some of the greatest in all of Detroit professional sports history, this building may never have been built. Yeah, you might be right. You know, we had a, a lot of success in the 90s and early 2000s, and uh, a lot of a lot of great players coming through uh, playing for the Wings. So you know, it is great to see this arena finally being up and, and running, and it's going to be uh, uh, impressive to, to see a game in here, too. But don't you think the old Joe, and especially the original locker room, before you guys tore it apart so they forced to redo it, <laughs> uh, that it kind of made you tougher, made you more of a team, you know, I mean, it, you know, it was kind of ugly and nasty, but then again, sometimes you have to be ugly and nasty out on the ice. In a way, yeah, you know, we loved playing in there, and I think opponents didn't like coming in there. Uh, the, the locker rooms weren't the, the best, the visiting locker rooms weren't the best, and it was, it was a tough, older arena. But we, as, as home players, we loved it, and I, I think it was very tough for the for the opponents coming in and playing in there. You know, I can't believe it was 2012 when you retired. I truly can. I mean, you you know, obviously, I'm going to try to you know, I'm going to try to cajole you to put on the uniform again here before this podcast is over. But uh, but seriously. Uh, was it such a great home ice advantage, Joe Lewis Arena? Because it, every all the new buildings all were looking the same. They didn't look anything like this, but they were these big, like cavernous kind of things. When you stepped on the ice at, at the Joe, you knew that you had the board. Well, you 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 were the best of the boards too. You knew those boards inside now. But I mean, it truly was a, a, a great home ice. It was, and and starting with with the ice itself, you know, Al Sabatka did a great job. The ice itself was very good, skating on it. The boards were alive. The puck was bouncing off the boards, and as as players, you know, practicing there every day, we knew where, where how the bounces were coming off the boards. Uh, even shooting the puck hard around the board, sometimes there's there's one spot where puck can come flying out in front of the net and shooting the puck uh, towards the end boards and knowing how the bounce would come out. And I think me and Homer had a, a great uh, a, a knowledge of knowing where the puck's going to come out, and he knew that if the guy, the defenseman weren't trying to block block my shot instead of taking him out of the play the puck would bounce out when I hit the board and boards the puck would bounce out in front where Homer would be standing so you know we used that to our advantage knowing where the bounces were and, and, and knowing how to play in there was it was there a set play did you would you say like I don't know for lack of a better term board or something to Homer he, <laughs> he knew where you were going to shoot it and boom he'd go over there or? 
Yeah, he he would. I think Homer would. Homer knew when when I couldn't get the shot through. He knew that I'm missing the net on purpose, short side on purpose, because the puck's gonna come bouncing out. And there was a, a quick bounce too. It wasn't in some arenas the puck's not bouncing out as hard, but at the Joe the puck really came flying out, and and it was hard for the goalies to kind of know where the puck was gonna come. But but somehow Homer and I kind of had a good. Good knock of knowing where the puck's going to be. So I would imagine, and I don't know, I'm going off the top of my head, you probably assisted on 97% of his goals. <laughs> <laughs> a lot, of, I don't know the stat itself, but I know there's a lot of goals that, uh, no, he was he was screening a lot of shots that I scored, and I know I'm sure it had a lot of assists on some of the tips that he scored too. What, uh, I know you toured the building, you looked, I know uh, Henrik Zetterberg Z said that uh, maybe you were a little envious uh, earlier today when you see all the amenities they have, but uh, this is truly spectacular. From a player perspective, I don't know if, if recruiting is even part of the whole process, but if someone's considering coming to Detroit, I think if they walk into the locker room, that's a pretty big inducement maybe to say, man, this is a pretty good setup. I think it is. I think it really helps bringing a free agent in and showing them the amenities and what, what the teams have downstairs in the locker room or around the locker room. And also just walking into the, the actual rink, seeing how steep the stands are. It seems like the fans are closer to you. Uh, reminds me a little bit about the uh, Montreal, the stadium in Montreal where the fans are more on top of you. So I'm anxious to see when it's it's a full house in here and it's, the crowd is really going to see how, how loud it is and, and just, just from being at dice levels and seeing how close the stands are, I think will help the team. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you that, you know, Manny told me when we were touring it that the opposing goaltender, because I, I think fans kind of lose training, there's a lot of chatter that sometimes goes on the ice, like a goaltender, like, you know, Dom, the must-see, must-see, yeah. so he's screaming at you. Uh, but he thinks it's going to be so loud, the opposing goaltender will not be able to communicate with his defenseman. And I can tell you by sitting here for some preseason games, and the building was like half full. It was loud then, so I can just imagine what, what it's going to be. I mean, it was designed for sound. We hear all the time from players, oh, the sounds, you know. I, I never pay attention to the crowd. I don't think you're going to have to pay attention to the crowd because, as you said, they're right on top of it. Yeah, and there's a lot of communications going on on the ice, whether it, you yell at your partner or the goalie yells at the, at the players what he wants to do. And that's, that's going to be a, a, a disadvantage for the opponents coming in here because it's going to be loud. And no one from playing in, in uh, other arenas where it's real loud, like the Shark Tank in San Jose, it's hard to communicate. It's hard to, to tell your partner what to do with a puck. So I'm anxious to see how loud it's going to be in here. Yeah, I, I know that we only have you for a limited time, and I can talk to you for far too long, <laughs> as you very well know. Uh, I, I want to, you know, like I said, 2012, does it seem like that long ago that you know, they, does it seem like you're retired, I guess? Because I know you can still play. Tell me, <laughs> uh, you're going to tell me you can't, but I know you can still play. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's been five years since I retired. You know, I've been coming back here every year, uh, watched a lot of games with, with, with the Wings, so it doesn't seem like it's been five years. And, and you know, some of the guys that are on the team that I played with, so it, it doesn't seem that long ago, really. If Ken Holland were to say, look, Nick, I'm giving you a blank check. You fill out the number. You fill out the <laughs> amount of games. You know, it's been done before. Ted Lindsay came back. I mean, legends have come back for this franchise. Gordy Howe, you know, you name it. Personally, almost every great man we just try to come back. Uh, how about you? I, I, you know, could, could you play in this arena? Uh, 
I, I truly don't think so. I think the game has, uh, I've been away from the game too long and the game is really fast now. I think it's even faster than when I retired five years ago. So I wish I could say yes to that question, but I, I don't. I honestly don't think that I could play, uh, play this game anymore. You know, Mike Babcock said last year after the Centennial Classic in Toronto, after he saw you play in the alumni game, that if you were to suit up for the Red Wings, their power play would get significantly better. I mean, even Babs <laughs> wants you to come back, and he's in Toronto now. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, I wish I wish that could happen, but uh, we did have a great time uh, playing in that outdoors game with the alumni, and uh, it's a different pace playing with the alumni than playing in the real NHL game for sure. All right, I, I'll get off it. I, I, I can, I'm fixated on trying to convince you to come back, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to stop. But one thing you did say when you retired, you said, you know, I know in my heart I could still play, but the thing that I don't know if it's in my heart. It's what I would have to do to keep my body in shape to be the best defenseman in the league. I mean, was was that really when you knew, you know, the body needs needs to be tuned up a little bit more than maybe I'm willing to give. I mean, is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and, and just uh, the fire, that desire to do it every day, that the hard work you have to put in to be able to play at this level. I didn't have that that desire that push anymore and I think that's what was the deciding factor the tipping scale that I I, I didn't have that drive that I that I had for so many years and that that uh, kind of helped me to play until I was 42 that drive it wasn't there anymore and that that kind of was the deciding factor for me did it make it was it an easy decision then I mean did you did you labor it over it or did you just get up one day and say look in the mirror and say hi Nick you're done no I I I went back and forth for about a month before I made my, my decision, but I knew I had to, first of all, I had to be honest with myself that, you know, I, I didn't want to come back and play, be a fifth or sixth or seventh defenseman and kind of be in and out of the lineup. I wanted to be what I've been in the past. I wanted to, to play in key situations. I wanted to play a lot of minutes. And, and when I, and I realized I couldn't do that anymore, uh, I knew I knew what I had to do. But it wasn't easy. It was a it was a tough decision. It was it was a very emotional decision too? Because you're leaving, you're leaving a team that's been so close to you for 20 years, and you're, you know, I, I left the city. I, I moved back to Sweden as well. So there was a lot of emotions uh, that uh, took place too when when I made that decision. Yeah, you know, one thing I always liked about you that you told me when you were drafted by the Red Wings in the third round. You were feeling pretty good about yourself, and you were going to come over. I think it was in New York, the draft, and be in the stands and hang out and, you know, just enjoy your name being called, getting up on stage and putting on the Red Wing jersey. But the Red Wings told you, stay as far away from the draft <laughs> as possible. I mean, they didn't want anyone to know that you were ready to come to the United States or come to the NHL more. more yeah, no, that's true. My agent uh, invited me to come over to the draft, and uh, only a few weeks before the actual draft. Uh, he called me again and said, well, I'm sorry, but the Wings won't let me uh, invite you to to, uh, to the draft because they don't want anyone else to see you there. and You, you might be, get picked by another team. So I missed out on, on being at the draft, but I did get the call that night uh, when I was back home in Sweden and from uh, the scout, Krista Rockstrom, that congratulated me and I, I talked to the GM and they were uh, looking forward to having me come over uh, in a couple of years, they said. So uh, I was very happy to, to be drafted. You know, another thing, it might be different with the current generation of Swedish players over here, but you had no aspirations to play in the NHL. Your goal was to play for the Swedish national team. It was, yeah. First of all, I wanted to play uh, on the national team because that's growing up in Sweden, you know, every spring you watch the World Championships and you watch Team Sweden play, and that's, that's kind of my dream when I was a little kid to play for 
for Team Sweden. But when I got drafted, you realize that you you know you might have a shot, might have a shot at coming over and playing in the NHL, and that kind of gave me another boost to you know to to uh, train harder and, and try to try to reach the next level, which would be to come to the NHL. How aware were you of the NHL growing up? I mean, I know Borja Salming was around. There weren't a yeah. whole lot of Europeans in general, and especially Swedes. Yeah, and they they weren't showing a lot of games uh, back home in, in Sweden. They would show the Stanley Cup Finals and. You know, Borja Salming was an idol of mine. I, I had him as an idol growing up, so I knew what he had done uh, with the Maple Leafs and over here in the NHL. So he kind of paved the way for for a lot of Swedes and a lot of uh, Europeans. But uh, you know, it's, it seems so far away when he didn't watch that many games, and uh, there, there was only a few Swedes that played over here at the time. So you get over here. You're, you're like instantly good. I mean, you, you, I know you don't like to think, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm not buttering you up, you know, but were you surprised at how you were able to adapt yourself to the North American NHL style of game? Because it was a seamless transition. Yeah, a little bit, because I never never played on, on a small ice surface, which is, you know, it, it's very different compared to playing in, yeah, in Europe. We have bigger ice surface, bigger rinks, and your game is a little bit quicker here. You have to make quicker decisions, but when I came over, uh, uh, Brian Murray gave me a chance, an opportunity right away to, to be on the power play, and I think that's one of their main reasons they they drafted me because I could I could play the power play. They they watched me play the, or run a power play in Sweden, so I I had the opportunity right away to be part of the power play, and, and you know it, it worked out right away. Me and Vladdy Kostantinov, I think we played every game our first season, and, and it was the team was in a transition from older defensemen to younger, so we came in at the right time, and I think we grabbed the opportunity when it was given to us as well. I'm going to try one more time. If Ken Holland comes up to you and says, Nick, I'm giving you a blank check, all you have to do is run the power play. You don't have to play anything <laughs> else. Would you consider that? No, I, I would have to say no. After uh, a short consideration, I would probably say no, and I would uh, I would sit up in the stands and enjoy the game. <laughs> well, uh, I, I know you said you moved back to Sweden, but you, you seem to be here quite often. I mean, Detroit is, is truly your second home. You're a very young man when you got here. Uh, how often do you come back, and how, how much do you miss? Look, I know all you Swedes. I don't know what it is. I know you love Sweden. I'm not going to, but... What do you miss about Detroit? How often do you do you think about it a lot? And what uh, do you miss about it? I do. I, you know, we come back maybe three or four times a year. Uh, come back, watch games, visit with friends, and uh, uh, you know, I came here as a young 21-year-old, and I left when I was 42. So half, you know, half my life I, I lived uh, here in the states, and pretty much all my adult life. So I miss, I miss our friends. We miss uh, just being part of the community. Of course, I miss coming down to uh, to, the, to games and, and being part of a, a team as well. But I miss uh, just the, the community and all the friends that we made over the years. Right. I mean, I know you still keep in contact with people. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine every time you're here, I I see Homer. I I'm kind of wondering, have, have you made him your own personal assistant or something? <laughs> you know, I think Homer is here a lot more than I am. But I know it, he is. it happens to be. Uh, some games that we're uh, we're always here together, but uh, you know we have some mutual friends too. So we tr we try to to schedule it that we can come here and, and visit friends at the same time and, and 
you know, he, Homer lives way up in northern part of Sweden, uh, about a 10-hour drive away from me, so I don't see him a whole lot, so I, I'll probably see him more when we're over here in, the, in the Detroit than uh, back at home. You know, I could be confusing you with, with Homer here, and forgive me if I am, but when you came over here, was Johan Garbenloff, was, was he somebody that took you under his wing, or am I, am I confusing that? No, no, you're right, Art. He, uh, uh, Garpy, as we call him, he uh, he was here. He had played one year. He came in the same year as uh, Sergei Fedorov did, and Garpy kind of helped me, took me under his wing uh, my first year. Uh, unfortunately, he got traded halfway through the year, but he helped me kind of get settled. In, uh, we, we, had, we had a place pretty close to one another. We, we rode down to... Uh, Practicing games together, so he kind of helped me when when I first came over. Did he do? Did he teach you how to balance a checkbook or something? I remember some weird story about a checkbook, which could be Homer as well. Uh, that doesn't ring a bell. That could be Homer, but it, it could have been me too. I can't remember now. <laughs> uh, I, I know we're really running out of time, and plus the. Uh, the club is here filling up, and these people have been nice because everybody wants to, like, you know, talk to you and get an autograph. I'm sure, but uh, yeah, they've been looking over here. Yeah, they have. Been, they have been, uh, it's making me uncomfortable. Yeah. I can just imagine how you feel. Uh, but I look back at those teams, and you know, and I've talked to you so many times over the years. Yarmer Yager, who's still playing, just signed with the Calgary <laughs> Flames, amazingly. But you always said he was the toughest guy to defend because he had a big butt. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was, was he? Is he still? When you look back now, you know, retired five years. First of all, you're amazed that he's still playing, and secondly, is he still the toughest guy to defend? Yeah, he is probably one of the toughest. You know, uh, his teammate uh, from his early years, uh, Mary Lemieux, was tough to defend as well. Right. He was a tall guy, right-handed shot, and uh, he didn't look like he had a, a ton of speed, but he did have speed when he came, uh, you know, through the neutral zone. So Yager was was still you know tough tough guy to defend, and I'm I am impressed that he is still playing. He still wants to play. He still has the desire. Uh, I saw him in L.A. Uh, last year during the season, and you know he, he said you know listen I, I love playing the game. I, I believe I can still play the game. So he said you know why not why not continue to play? So I'm not I'm not surprised that he's still playing, but I'm surprised that he can still be you know impact player the, the way he is. When you look back now and. I look at the 2002 team, which I think the whole roster, you know, I think I might even go into the Hall of Fame, you know, yeah. for covering the team. I mean, there's never going to be another team like that, right? The NHL, maybe a hard cap. I mean, I mean that, yeah, that I, might be the last real super team in NHL history. I believe so, too. I don't think you can put put together a team like that with with a salary cap and, and uh, the superstars we had on that team. And, you know, just looking at some, some of the old pictures I had, uh, my half the team is, is in the Hall of Fame or is going into the Hall of Fame, which is truly amazing. So, uh, you know, that team is, is something I don't think you ever see uh, to get to, in today's game. How proud are you that you established the Swedish identity in the NHL and then the Red Wings completely embraced it where, you know, every, every young Swedish hockey player I talk to, whether they're being drafted by Detroit or not, the Red Wings are the team in Sweden, you know, no offense Peter Forsberg, but they are. I mean, and that's a testament to the player that, that you were and, and the other Swedes as well, Zetterberg, I know that, but really, I mean, when you came over here, did you think that you would be like the face of Swedish hockey? Oh, not at all. No, I was just I was just happy that I was here and I, I, I could I could grab a jersey and be, be part of the team. But you know we, we've had a lot of success over the years, and I think 
especially in the later uh, later years, a lot of Swedes were part of that too. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of to be part of something like that, but also that we had a lot of Swedes that uh, that, that you know that play during the championship years. You know, I guess it's easy when you're winning to everybody get along, but I mean, you, this was a really melting pot locker room. There were guys from all over the country, uh, all yeah. over the world, and. American Swedes, Canadians, you know, Czech, everything. Was it difficult, or did you all have that common bond of hockey, which really kind of made that was the only language you really needed to understand, I guess. Yeah, I think I think you, you hit the hit the nail on the spot there, because we all love playing hockey, and, and even on the road when when we were traveling together, you never saw a clique of Swedes or a clique right. of, of Russians being together. We're all Mixing each other, mixing, uh, going out for dinners and, and hanging out, and and I think that showed on the ice too. We weren't we weren't a selfish team. We were always team first oriented, and I think that shows that it didn't really matter where you were from because you all had one goal, and that was winning and winning championships. And you know we were successful in doing that. You know, you win four cups. Anyone stand out? Are they all? You know, it's like I'm going to ask you. I know you have, you know, I know you have all these boys. Which one's yeah. your favorite? But you know, but truly, how about the uh, uh, any, any cup that you really just think back and just think, man, that was that was the moment for me. Uh, it's very hard to pick pick one over the other, but they're all special in their own way. We were talking about the old two team. That was special because we lost two the first two home games against Vancouver in the first round. We're getting booed off the ice. We're traveling out to Vancouver to to, to play a, a very good Vancouver team, and we were able to turn that around and, and win four you, straight games. You turned it around, though, right? I, I, the shot from center ice. Yeah, I did I score mean, from center Kuchet, ice. God bless him. Was never the same goalie after that. No, I, I think that that uh, that hurt his confidence a lot when I scored from center ice. But that team was very special. The All Stars we had, the future Hall of Famers that that played as a team, and I think Scotty was a big part of that, making us play as a team. Uh, 2008 was special for myself, because I was I was captain, I was the first European-born captain to, to hoist the Stanley Cup, which which meant a lot to me as well. So they're, they're all special. 97 was special, because it was 40-some years before, 42, right? 42 years uh, since the Wings had won the Cup. And I remember uh, during that parade, old men came up and, and cried and, and thanking us for bringing the Stanley Cup back to town again. So. They're all special in, in their own way. Did, did you learn something then about Detroit, maybe that you didn't know, that just how intense people are here and engaged in this hockey club? Yeah, you could tell, especially in, in that 97 run we had, how much hockey meant, meant to people here. You know, we, we're always selling out. There's always 20,000 people uh, at the Joe, but when you see over a million people come out for the parade, you realize this this means a lot for, for the city and, and for the state of Michigan, too. Right, certainly. Um, do you keep in contact besides Homer, who probably doesn't let you alone? But uh, <laughs> do you try to keep in contact with old teammates, or you know, your father now? You know, your boys are you know all over the place. Probably they've got their interests, and you're you're watching over them. But uh, do you try to keep in touch with some teammates? Yeah, with some of them, I, I try to keep in touch. Uh, not that you you call them or every day, or you talk to them, but through uh, social media or you send text messages and. Yeah, so some of the guys we you know, stay in contact with, and having nights like like tonight, and even the last game at the Joe when a lot of alumni came back, former players came back, that uh, that brings back some great memories too. You you sit down, and you talk to someone for two minutes, and all of a sudden it's like like your time just flew by. So it, it's great that we had a chance to, to, to meet each other again in, in different games like this. When you look back, you know you win what seven Norris trophies should have been at least nine, uh, but. I know you're not a, 
you're not motivated by individual accomplishments, but seven Norris trophies for a European considering, and I'll say it, you don't have to. You know, in the beginning, you weren't recognized. I can still remember when you played that triple overtime game against Carolina, I was on the bus and I told you, I said, Nick, when this, because you didn't practice the next day, but you played like 60 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> when, this, when this thing opens, when they open it up, because you have media obligation, even the Canadian press is going to be all over you. And that door opened, and you were like a superstar. <laughs> they, they just gravitated to you. Yeah. Um, even though you don't dwell on it, I mean, seven Norris trophies. You know, I thought Bobby Orr was the greatest player I've ever seen when I was a little boy. I've seen several players that measure up to him. You're obviously one of them, but... You know, Nick, do you ever sit back and think, yeah, I was pretty good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when, when people uh, are, are talking about different Stanley Cup runs or, or uh, you know, individual awards. You kind of look back and say, yeah, I'm, I had a very successful career, especially as, as, a, a, as a team with, with the Wings, but also individual awards. So I'm very proud of looking back at uh, you know, what I've accomplished uh, individually as well as winning, with, winning Stanley Cups. You know, the Red Wings are going through a little bit of a rebuild here. Uh, you know, let's say, put it this way, if Ken Holland came up to you, said, Nick, I'm giving you a blank check. Just give me 10 freaking games. Would you consider? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I would I would say, uh, Kenny, well, thanks for the offer. And I, <laughs> I truly appreciate it, but uh, I'd rather sit up next to him up in the press box and <laughs> watch games. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I, asked you this I asked you this before. Uh, do, do you, you know, I know you wanted, do you want to stay involved in hockey? I mean, so many of your teammates are either running clubs or Sergey God, he's, he's in Moscow, general manager. I still think he wants to play, but, you know, I, I mean, do you think and sit there and go, once my family's settled, my boys are, you know, living their lives, whatever they're going to do, you know, I'd like to get involved with either the Swedish national team, maybe I come back to Detroit and, you know, run the Red Wings or something. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, it's... Whatever you want to do, you're going to do. I know that. Yeah, no, I've, I've kind of left that door open down the road. Once the kids get a little older, I'm, I'm involved with youth hockey right now, and I was involved with Team Sweden uh, during the World Cup uh, tournament last year, which which was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun being being close to a you know a, a competitive team, a, like a professional team again. So, you know, I, I'll leave that door open. We'll see down the road if if, uh, if that will be something that I would, would consider. Well. Um trying to wrap this up and you know and I, and I want to talk to you for far too long but I can always remember you being really a, a measured player you know that you talked and you you always you know yeah, this is the most talking I've seen you in a while but hey you know uh, but the thing that I the story I always enjoyed about you was when you would talk about your relationship with Scotty Bowman and you know and I would talk to several of the other guys like he's always screaming at Brendan he's you know he's always he's always yeah. in Brendan's ear or in his grill and telling him this Scotty basically just let you alone, right? I mean, how much communication yeah. did you really have with him? Uh, well, Scotty and I didn't really communicate a whole lot, and and uh, at first I didn't know as a younger player I didn't really know how to how to take that. I you know I had Dave Lewis and uh, Barry Smith, the uh, assistant coaches, helping out and kind of giving giving some uh, you know details of what I can do better, but. Scotty kind of left me alone, and after a while, I realized I took that as a, as a good sign that I must be doing something good because I'm playing a lot and my ice time is going up every year. But he's not saying a whole lot to me, so I, I took that as a good sign that I must be doing something good when, I, when he kept putting me out there on the ice. 
Can you remember any conversation you ever had with him? You know, I do remember one conversation we had in the playoffs where uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't mention any names, but it was a, a defenseman that wasn't doing all all too well, and I I talked to. Uh, Dave Lewis, our assistant coach, about putting another guy in, into the lineup. And before I know it, Scotty called me into his office. So I guess <laughs> Dave Lewis asked Scotty about what, I, what he thought about it, and he mentioned that, that I said it. So Scotty called me into his office, and we had a good talk about what I thought and what he thought. And, uh, you know, that next game, that guy was in the lineup, and he played in that, this was in the playoffs, and he played that playoff game, and then. He was in the in in the on the in the lineup every every game after that. So that's probably the, the longest conversation I had with Scott during my, my playing career. Well, it makes sense. It's something to make the hockey club better. He was all probably years about that. One final question, and I do mean one final question, even though I've said that three times, I think by now. Um, you know, it's you know Scotty, and you know he was an interesting character. Homer's an interesting character. Who was the most normal player that you ever played? <laughs> <laughs> I would say the most normal player to, especially to play that position, was probably Chris Osgood, because he really he went. He's a goalie. He's and he's yeah, because goalies are a little bit different. They they kind of stayed in their own bubble and, and uh, you know the way they focus. But Ozzy was he was more relaxed and he even before games, most goalies kind of get into their bubble and get ready for games. But Ozzy was more relaxed and and. Um, he was, he wasn't your typical goalie, and I think that's why I, I say his name because he was, he was like one of the guys, and you usually don't see that with goalies. You know, when you you just talked about Scotty and Ozzy being normal, which is like headlines in this city, <laughs> uh, but when they were going to make a trade, I'd always heard this, and I've never asked you this, so this is the last question because you might punch me. No, no, it's not that bad. That the Red Wings came to you. You played against all the best players in the league. You pretty much dominated all the best players in the league. When they were going to do something, make a move or sign a guy or something, how much did they come and ask you your opinion and did you offer I, it? Uh, it did happen on a few different occasions where uh, Ken Holland would ask me about different players and you know what, what I thought about this guy or that guy and, and uh, you know I, I told him my, my opinion and but he never he never came to me and said we're, which which guy should we trade. It never got to that. It right. only came to what do I think about this guy? What can he help our team with? And and I, I gave him my honest opinion on, on guys that he wanted to sign or guys that he was maybe looking to trade for. If Ken Holland came to you and said, Nick, look, I'm giving you a blank check, you fill in the numbers, I'll sign it, or Mrs. Illich will sign it. You don't even have to play a game. Just sit on the freaking bench. Just for the possibility that you could go out there. Would you do it? That would be easier. That would, I could sit on the bench with my gear on and, and uh, probably have the best seat in the house. So that would be that would be a lot more fun, actually, than, than uh, running a power play. So I would consider that. That's for sure. <laughs> right. there, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I knew I could get Nick to at least consider coming back. <laughs> Nick, it's always a pleasure. You know that. I mean, I, I can't express the gratitude I have felt over the years where you take time to sit and talk to me and put up with my, you know, my nonsense. So uh, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Best of luck, and, and we'll have you on again very, very soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Art. I appreciate it.